Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Three ATP 250s last week. We are going to run through all three of them this week. All three finals, that is. We had Stockholm, we had Antwerp, we had Tokyo. If I had to pick a top headline from the week, a main story of the week, just one, it would be that Ben Shelton has won his first career title at last week's ATP 500 in Tokyo, taking out Aslan Karatsev. The hype train reached new heights, obviously, after the U.S. Open, and since then, Ben Shelton has done nothing but validate his status as a top 20 player with a Shanghai quarterfinal and a Tokyo title. Remember, this kind of success was uh, non-existent after the Australian Open and throughout most of this year, especially at ATP-sanctioned events. So it's a big title for Ben, and it was also his first career final. If you would tell me, at this level of course, if you were to tell me that a player is going to play their first final, a final that they come in, you know, with some expectations of winning it, right? They're not like a heavy underdog. I would obviously assume that there would be some hiccups, that the moment, the nerves, the occasion, it, it might prevent that player from playing their very, very best. But as I've talked about quite a bit with Ben Shelton, this is one of his best attributes. His makeup, his makeup, his character allows him to play his very best. Bigger the moment, bigger the stage, better the level. That is usually how it works with Ben Shelton. And he played a perfect match. He played his best match of the week against Aslan Karatsev in this final. So it's just another example that, you know, Ben shows up and plays his best in the biggest matches. He's an outside shot for uh, Turin now. He's 14th in the race. I mean, it's still a long shot, but he's gotten himself in that conversation, which is pretty incredible. Tactically, this matchup, look, both players, they attack better than they defend. So I thought coming into the match, it was always going to be about um, who can execute a serve return dynamic that allows them to play from ahead more consistently, right? Whichever player attacks more is probably going to win this. So that comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to serve execution, you know, consistency of, uh, of your serve, and 
potentially who can land some offensive returns. Obviously, those two things are connected. They're related. Uh, but what happened in this five-all game in the first set, well, both players were holding uh, pretty, pretty comfortably up until this point. Five-all first set, and Karatsev's serve just kind of falls off. And at 15-love... He misses his spot on a first serve. It goes right into Shelton's forehand. And Ben makes a forehand down the line return that forces an error. At 15-all, Karatsev double faults. 30-all uh, wasn't as much down to the serve, but they did get into a neutral rally. And Shelton played a couple of good backhand trades cross-court. That's another thing with Karatsev. You want to test his patience. And if you're able to keep the ball deep in a cross-court pattern... Karatsev is probably going to be the first to change down the line. And again, if you're playing quality balls in that cross court, you might have Karatsev making a really difficult redirect and attacking when it's not really there. And this was an example of that. Uh, Shelton's backhand into Karatsev's forehand, and Karatsev uh, changes direction with the forehand down the line. It goes long. Break point. And it's a, another missed first serve. Shelton hits this big forehand return on the second serve that is right at Karatsev's feet and it forces the air. If Karatsev were able to get that ball back, Shelton was actually coming in behind his return, which is something that he's now doing quite a bit, and I saw it a lot in Tokyo. So he's probably going to win the point off of that return no matter what. Because if Karatsev got it back, Shelton was in good position to uh, probably put away the next ball. I love this pressure. I love this play by Shelton. But as you can see, Karatsev has a double fault. He loses two points off of Shelton's aggressive returning flat out. And that is the anatomy of the break of serve. Karatsev, 48% first serves in for the first set was not executing his serve as well as Shelton was executing his. And that would be the difference in the second set, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, Shelton was able to create a lot more separation than that. But what Ben was doing on his serve was really, really impressive. Uh, the first thing with Karatsev, uh, you see how close he stands. And this is maybe even a, a hair further back than he usually stands against Shelton. Uh, so you want to serve to all three targets instead of two. It, it's not just about T versus wide. You have to mix in the body. And Shelton was doing that really well. The serve variation is, is kind of what I'm getting at here. It was excellent because not only was he serving to three different targets, he was also mixing up his speeds and his spins. Some of Sometimes the first serve would be a kick. Sometimes it would be a slice. Sometimes it would be flat. And when you're able to do these things and mix it up this much, it takes a little bit of pressure off of your your serve quality, and I think if I highlight here a really big part in a, a, a big part of the match, which is Shelton after that five all break trying to serve out the first set at six five, and we pick this up at thirty all. Um, Shelton is going to go with the flat serve, and I think he's trying to get it into the body here. He might be trying to get it out wide, but this is a, a missed spot here by Shelton. But because there's so much variety, because not every serve is the the big pacey one, he's still able to get away with this missed spot on the serve 
because Karatsev catches it late. You can see by kind of the, the path of his racket head, he's, uh, his contact point is kind of behind him here, and he just couldn't catch up with the pace on Shelton's serve. I, I'm telling you and I promise you, if Shelton was hitting 130 every single serve, at this level, the players just get used to it. And 130 is not going to get you, you know, great purchase on the first serve if you do it over and over and over again and you don't hit spots. And Zverev is kind of a, a good example of this. That's what Zverev does, right? His serve's 130, but he doesn't mix it up and he doesn't hit spots. And players return his first serve. You know, he's not at the top of the leaderboards in first serve effectiveness even though he has great pace, and that is why. So Shelton um, cannot say the same, and I, I just credit the variety for why uh, Karatsev can't make this, this return here, and it goes long. Next point, 40-30, set point, and this was kind of Shelton's bread and butter in the match, or at least it was his go-to play under pressure. Uh, let's do the slice out wide, and Karatsev's going to chip it, and Ben is serving volleying. So not only do you have serving to all three targets, different speeds, different spi uh, different spins, you also have serve and volley threat from Shelton. And he figured out pretty early on in the match that if he hits a slice serve to Karatsev's backhand, Aslan was giving him that floating chip, and Shelton puts away this volley. Karatsev gets a racket on it, but he can't make it. This is the same thing he did when facing the only breakpoint of the match. This was at Love 1. It's at out for Karatsev. Again, slice serve out wide. This one was even better. But Karatsev makes a good athletic stretch return. Doesn't matter because Shelton's in. And this is an easy backhand volley winner into the open court. Draw the block. Figure out how to draw the block. And attack the block with the serve and volley. Ben's volleys look improved. Shelton's volleys were excellent in this match. Physically, he's a guy, to me, who seems built for the serve and volley. He's got that explosive build. He carries more muscle on him than most tennis players. That's a guy who maybe isn't as built for, you know, moving laterally 20-shot rallies over and over again. That's going to wear him out. He's not going to have the endurance to do that quite as well. Maybe he can do it a little bit, but but it shouldn't be really his point to point. But those short explosive movements, that's where Ben is going to excel because that's who he is as an athlete. Very, very explosive athlete. So that's, I, I just look at Ben as an athletic specimen. To me, that's what he's really well suited for. He looks like those a little bit like those serving volleyers from the 90s who would carry a lot more muscle and heft to them uh, because those those short explosive movements were were really what they were training for. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't think I've ever said that about Ben Shelton. So I showed you only the one break point he faced for the match. He was at 80% first serves won, 70% second serves won, 35% total serves unreturned. Dominant on the serve for Shelton. That remained the case for the second set. But uh, come the second set, Ben's forehand started to have a lot of moments. 
Karatsev was not reading the forehand down the line at all. It was like every time Shelton hit a forehand down the line, Karatsev was just shocked. Um, it was it was crazy. At a certain point, you know, Karatsev smashed the racket. He broke the racket, and it was off of a Shelton forehand down the line because I, I think he eventually, like in that moment, realized like. How come every time he hits this forehand down the line, I just have no read on it whatsoever? And Karatsev, every time, it's like his split step was on the ad side, and he wasn't leaning or moving uh, early at all, and it was, um, there were a lot of winners off of the Shelton forehand because of that. And Karatsev, in the second set, compared to the first set, more wasteful, some big volley errors especially, and it was a dominant set for Ben, 6-1. Big picture for Oslan. He came in completely unchallenged to this final. Very different from Shelton, who looked dead against Marcos Giron in the semifinal. Uh, Karatsev was 8-0 in sets. He beat Dimonor. He beat Tiafo. That's two top 20 wins. Uh, this was his first final in over a year and a half. My take on him as a player has always been that he's an exceptional offensive talent, that he has some limitations. But I always feel like Karatsev, in the prime of his career, maybe he's starting to get up there, upper 20s, uh, I feel like he should be a low seed at majors. I feel like he should hang between you know 20 and 32. When I watch him play and I look at his assets, that's kind of where I land on him. Well, he fell outside the top 100 this year. He's always been a little bit enigmatic, hard to kind of understand his career path at all times. And this was another example of that. But all this to say, he's had some good results recently and he's 37 in the world now. So he, ha he is kind of back in that range where I feel like Aslan Karatsev should be. But congratulations to Ben for the title. Let's go on to the next one. In Antwerp, Alexander Bublik defeats Arthur Fies. It is Bublik's third career title. Remember, he lost his first several finals. His path will not impress you. He beat Barrere, uh, French wildcard, Pericar, uh, Martyrer, and Fies. But what will impress you are his stats. He won 92% of his first serve points for the week. Nobody could touch his serve all week long. Obviously, um, the next step for Bublik, big picture before I get into the match, is for him to try and be a top 30 player every week. Because he, he's not. He has never been that. Uh, he did not have a top 100 win since Wimbledon before this week. Remember after he won the title in Halle and a lot of people were asking me to take him seriously as a Wimbledon contender and I was not taking him seriously as a Wimbledon contender. And I'm just like, look, he's got to do more than one week. And then he makes the round of 16 at Wimbledon. All right, pretty good. I said after Wimbledon, Bublik has my attention. He has my attention here. Did something change? Is he a different guy? Is he going to like want it more and compete a little bit better? And then 
No, that that's not what happened. But he's he's a nightmare indoors. When he's in a good mood and he's indoors, he's tough. Uh, just one more stat I want to throw out your way on Bublik. His record in first round matches this season is seven and thirteen. So it's almost two out of every three events he's going home after the first round with Bublik. I mean, that's the kind of that's what we're dealing with here. It's a player who is not going to really show up every week and and put in a good performance. And I was especially disappointed with the team match at the U.S. Open. Uh, but this final against Feast was Bublik at his very, very best. I mean, he... Arthur Feast did not have fun. Okay? I think that's the best way I can put it. Arthur Feast did not have fun. Bublik won 36 out of 37 first serve points. I think that's 97%. He double faulted a ton. Bublik did. But if you look at second serve points in play, he won 9 out of 15. Which means the majority of the return points that Feast won in the match were Bublik double faults. 11 Bublik double faults. 7 times Feast won a return point. That was not. A double fault. So mentally, when I say like Feast didn't have fun, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, but mentally, what is that? Like, you got to understand that winning a return point on a double fault does not fill you with the great joy and confidence that winning a return point any other way uh, will kind of fill you with that joy. That was bad English, but you know exactly what I'm saying. You're not exactly fist pumping when your opponent's double fault. And that is to say that Feast basically had no reason to feel positive whatsoever on return throughout this match. No reason to feel positive. Even when he had chances. Again, those chances were usually because Bublik double faulted twice in the game. And that happened plenty. And Feast still didn't break serve. Feast... Um, was not able to really play a lot of extended exchanges either. There were 119 total points in this match. 79% of them were 0 through 4 shots. 15% of them were 4 through 8 shots. 5% were 9+. plus. So you play 10 points. 8 of them are not seeing a fifth shot. And when they did, when they did go past that bang, bang, serve plus one, serve return kind of thing, then Bublik would come in with drop shots. He would come in with short slice. He would come in with these slow, bunted backhands. They weren't slice. They were, they were drive, but they were slow and flat and wasn't much pace to them. And then he would mix in those big, aggressive forehand rips. No rhythm. Never playing the same ball twice. Refusing to trade. And that's all Feast wants to do is back up behind the baseline and trade some ground strokes and, and use the two assets that are his best assets. Weight of shot on the forehand and physicality. And if you're not playing rallies and Bublik is 
hitting all of this low and slow and short stuff, Feast is not able to use his weight of shot on the forehand either. So Feast got killed in the serve return dynamic. We'll talk about that. Got killed in the serve return dynamic. But even when these points started to play out a little bit, the slow pace and the low height stuff just killed Feast. They created enough errors off the ground from Feast um, to really offset any edge that the Frenchman had from the back. And just in general, I saw something here that other players can maybe take advantage of, which is that, you know, Feast's backhand looked very uncomfortable off of slow balls, and Feast's forehand lost its penetrating qualities from low contact points. His forehand reminds me a lot of Casper Roots. It's a high RPM forehand. It's a Western grip forehand. The lower the contact point is, the less likely he is to hurt you. Because the miles per hour just starts to struggle to kind of match those RPMs. And RPMs without speed, uh, it's not going to create damage. So that's what I've seen in the rallies. Just great stuff from Bublik, keeping the ball low and using the slice. And uh, Feast looked very, very bothered by that. Bublik was also using the chip on his return. The execution of Bublik's block return was uh, was exceptional. What Bublik does on return, he kind of waits with his forehand continental grip. So he's always going to kind of chip the forehand. And he's going to drive the backhand with that same grip. So there's no grip change really, for Bublik on the return of serve, which is a comfortable position for, you know, to be in. The serve comes so fast that it's hard to change a grip. And Bublik doesn't really concern himself with that because he has a system that works, which is drive the backhand, chip the forehand. The two breaks in this match, you go back and you look at them, it's just... Constant quality off the return from Bublik over and over and over again. At 2-all, 15-love, backhand drive return, deep, off-balance, first ball from Feast that he misses on the forehand. Second serve at 15-all, backhand return, deep, has Feast moving backwards. And Feast ends up making a backhand on forced error later in the rally on the fifth ball. He missed too many backhands in this match. 15-30 now. Forehand block return deep enough to neutralize uh, Feast's plus one forehand. And uh, Feast misses a forehand later in the rally. 1540 is one that I have a screenshot for because Feast, this is early on in the match, and, and he recognizes at this point that Bublik is blocking every forehand return. So to his credit, Feast, just like Shelton did against Karatsev, was like, let's try the serve and volley here. And he hits the slice serve out wide. And Bublik, with hands as soft as a feather, puts this return really low and makes Feast hit a half volley. And Feast puts the uh, the half volley into the net. Ignore that screenshot. That doesn't mean anything. But he puts that half volley into the net. And uh, there goes that tactic. Feast never tried it again. Never again. In the second set at Laval, we see a lot of the same thing. You know, we see a 
uh, Bublik backhand drive return really, really deep. Feast moves back um, on the first ball. And eventually, Bublik uh, draws an error off of a short, slow slice to Feast's backhand, which was working over and over again. At love 15, Bublik block return inside out, and Feast has a first ball backhand. That's not what he wants. Such a good block return that Feast hit a first ball backhand. Feast hits a bad first ball backhand drop shot. And Bublik wins the point. Now it's love 30. Feast double faults. Now it's love 40. Bublik, block return, deep, stays pretty low. Plus one forehand, unforced error into the net. Does not like the low contact point on the forehand. Would much rather that ball jump up high. So block return was a nightmare um, for Bublik on the serve of Feast. On the serve of Bublik, Arthur could not say the same. It looked like the pace was eating him up. He struggled to hit quality block returns, even when he was willing to hit block returns, which was not always. He did not seem to engage in a lot of anticipation or guessing. He stood close. He barely tested moving back. He moved back for two points or, you know, maybe three points in the start of the second set, and that was it. Um, and, you know, I guess one note that I have for Feast for this match was you got to show a little bit of commitment to your adjustments. Like he served and volleyed once, even though that was probably a good play in this match. He moved back on return, one return game. No, it didn't work in the points that he did it, but then you just go away from it immediately. You got to give it some time. And he didn't here. Bublik ends up hitting 61% first serves unreturned compared to Fisa's 34% first serves unreturned. Another thing that was evident in this match was Bublik's serve dominance manufacturing nerves. And that can happen. When you know you're not going to get a lot of chances, when you are not getting yourself into a lot of return games, those moments, those openings, when you do have a chance, they become moments of even more pressure than they would ordinarily be. First set, 5-4, uh, 15-30. This was his biggest chance in the first set, other than, you know, he did have a break point in the previous game. So at 4-3, uh, Fies had a break point. And this was an example of a block return that was very short in the court and ineffective because it had no depth. And it wasn't even, it was kind of a missed spot by, by Bublik. But again, we talk about Fisa's block return. It's just not as good because I'm guessing he doesn't do it as much as Bublik because he likes to hit over his return. Um, it, he, it's not as effective. It's not as quality. You know, maybe it's that his hands aren't as good. Maybe it is that, as Hugh Clark wrote in Thread of Order, maybe it's that he has the uh, Western grip on his forehand, and as a result, he's less comfortable blocking from a continental grip because if he changes the grip, it's a further distance to the chip grip. If he doesn't change his grip, which is an option, like you can almost turn your wrist far enough that you can slice with a forehand grip. It's possible to do. 
I think Fee's tried it a couple times. Um, if you do that, well, the Western grip is even further away from a continental than a semi-Western or an Eastern grip. So maybe that's the reason. But whatever the reason, the block return isn't as good for Fee's. And it... it um, it hurt him in the, on that first break point. Um, at 15.30, at 5.4, though, he actually got into a point. He got into a rally at 15.30. And he got a short ball on his backhand, and he buried it into the net off of a very slow ball. Comes to one of our common themes. Feast just not looking comfortable generating with his backhand. Uh, second set, 30.40. Break point in the second set. Missed a second serve return. Not on a big Bublik bomb second serve. It was actually on a slower Bublik second serve. And Fies missed a backhand return. So you can point to those big moments where uh, I, I do think that Fies got really, really tight. Um, Not trying to close out the match or, or anything like that. Like It was literally the fact that he had no rhythm and no feel and I think probably very little confidence in his ability to generate a lot of opportunities for himself. So when those chances came, it did look like he kind of freaked out and missed backhands. Let's end with Stockholm. I'm not going to get as deep into the weeds with the tactics here. Um, but I'm amazed with Gail Monfils that he's doing this. He wins his 12th title in his career. And I thought he would probably end with 11. If you were to ask me earlier this year, would Monfils win, ever win another title? I would have told you no. This foot ankle injury put him out from Cincinnati 2021 to Indian Wells 2022. He comes back, starts the year 0-7 in completed matches. Gets his first win over Sebastian Baez at Roland Garros and then immediately has to withdraw from Roland Garros with a wrist injury. He wasn't winning matches. He wasn't staying healthy. And he's 37. You might say like 0-7 is nothing to freak out over. Not a big deal. It's typical for a player coming off of injury. Okay, sort of, maybe, kind of. But at 37, sometimes the body just says, okay, no, you're done here. We're not going to do this anymore. And for Monfils, I got to say, it kind of looked like that was happening. But then he comes back from the wrist injury. And you see him, I think it was in, in Canada, play a level and move at a level, it was in Canada, where he made the quarterfinal, and he beat Titipas, and he beat Eubanks, and he pushed center. And it was like, okay, never mind. Monfils still has something in him here. And ever since then, he's been pretty good. When I say 37, though, I think we're kind of getting desensitized to this. Because it is true that we, we are seeing it more and more often. But he just became the fourth player since 1990 to win a title above age 37. Age 37 or above, I should say. Only four players since 1990. It's Federer, 
Karlovich, and Feliciano Lopez. That's the list. Gael Monfils joins that list. And speaking of longevity, this is another streak that looks like it was going to end this year because he hadn't made a final. He has now made a final in 19 straight years on tour. It goes back to 2005. Got to be the longest active streak, right? Because Nadal, whatever Nadal had, is uh, is going to end this year. So, um, 12 titles for Monfils in his career now. 12 and 22 in finals. 0 and 6 versus the big three. That's a big part of that. And... Uh, yeah, it's fantastic to see that he still has quite a bit left. Still capable of a, a really fun, great level. And I've talked a lot about how I, I do think he's gotten smarter as a player. Uh, th this match against Kotov was a good, gritty performance, good win. But I loved his Manorino win because he was so tactical against Manorino. And uh, he was giving him so much, so much slow stuff to the forehand. It was a really good example of the Gael Monfils 2.0, who, like, I'm not going to say that he's got amazing tactics now all the time and that he's a strategist, but he is willing to kind of get out of his own shell and to really focus on who he, who's on the other side of the court and to, to change the way he's playing to try to attack those certain weaknesses, which is something that really wasn't a part of his game for the longest time. Pavel Kotov, 24-year-old from Russia, who had the best week of his life. He had two challenger titles last year. Goodyear on the challenger tour last year. That kind of put his ranking in a spot where he was going to be able to play a mix of challengers and tour events this year. Uh, most of his tour events were 250s. Um, after this week, where he came through qualifying, became the first qualifier to make a final this year on tour. ATP side. You might remember, I mean, Struff, but Struff was a lucky loser, not a qualifier. Doesn't count. So uh, Kotov was the first qualifier to come through. Um, after this week, he is 13 and 13, where he won, he won five matches in the main draw and two matches in the qualies. But main draw ATP, he's 13 and 13 this year. 500, respectable. He has never had two top 50 wins in one week um, like he did this week, beating Greek Spore and um, Eubanks, right? I think I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, Greek Spore and Eubanks. So first week that he ever wins two top 50, uh, gets two top 50 wins in a row. Best week of his life. But what is he as a player? His forehand... His forehand is an, was an incredible weapon. Unbelievable to watch. Um, it looks a little cramped, but it's flowy and smooth. And, you know, it's as flat as can be. And all of the racket speed that he generates kind of goes straight through the ball. No spin whatsoever. And, man, on an indoor hard court, that ball, when you come through it completely flat, it stays low. It goes fast. Um, he's very precise with it. It stays deep. I thought he absorbed pace well as well. I wouldn't say that he has great timing on redirections, but I would say 
that when he has time on the ball, he really can put the ball on a dime. Very accurate on that forehand. Kind of just took over. Took over a lot of these matches. It's a fun shot to watch, so I'll be keeping an eye on Kotov. Look, I don't know how the rest of his game really measures up. If you kind of like, okay, now you have to ask, what's the standard here, right? If you're asking me, is Kotov a top 50 guy? I don't know if the rest of his game measures up well enough for him to repeat something like this. Uh, his backhand is a little bit manufactured. Thought he had trouble generating on his backhand as well. Uh, the serve and the athleticism are fine, but they're not going to wow you. So it's really, you know, a guy with sort of uh, average serve, average athleticism, maybe a backhand weakness, and a great forehand. That's the makeup for Kotov. And to me, he's not a lock to be a top 50 player from what I saw. Um, but maybe at some point my mind will be changed. I certainly think he can be a regular on the tour. And once again, I think the forehand is super, super fun to watch. That's all I got. We're going to have a mailbag later this week. I am going to be on T2 commentating for um, for Basel and Vienna. So um, tune into T2 if you're in the U.S. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.